Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. On February 7th, 1999, in Westminster, Colorado, 38-year-old Paul Skiba, his 9-year-old daughter Sarah Skiba, and his employee, 36-year-old Lorenzo Shivers, all disappeared from the yard of Paul's moving company, Tough Movers, presumed to have been murdered. There's been no sign of this unfortunate trio since their mysterious disappearance over 20 years ago. DNA evidence left at the crime scene suggested that at least two of the three victims had been murdered at the Tough Movers yard. However, as is the case in many unsolved murders, some ridiculously incompetent police work marred the early days of the investigation. Likely a large part of the reason this heinous crime has gone unsolved for so long and left family and friends wondering who was behind these unsettling disappearances and why. Paul Carroll Skiba was born on February 23, 1960, in the tiny town of Centerville, Minnesota. Though his father was a cop, Paul was known as a troublemaker in his hometown, and as he got older, this harmless troublemaking eventually turned into a misdemeanor drug charge and a missed court date. Searching for the chance to start anew, at the age of 21, Paul and his girlfriend moved out to Westminster, Colorado, with Paul using the alias Craig Nelson. He would eventually get caught and charged on this outstanding warrant, but the charges did not stick, and Paul ended up remaining in Colorado. Now, despite his slightly checkered past, those that knew him described Paul as a hardworking, outgoing, ambitious, and friendly man, someone who made friends easily and was willing to help out anyone who needed it. Shortly after moving to Westminster, Paul became friends with a local man named Jerry, and the two began looking for work together, paging through the classifieds and making calls every day. It did not take long before Paul found a gig working for a company that made baby buggies, followed by one that installed sprinkler systems. After running into a friend that worked for a moving company called Student Movers, he went to work for them, and he would end up working in the moving industry for the rest of his life. In fact, when his boss decided to leave the moving business, Paul bought his trucks and started his own moving company called Tough Movers. Paul would end up making many loyal friends over the 17 years that he lived in Westminster, due in large part to his own dedication and loyalty, even through rough times. Paul met a man named Bob Martinez while they were both working for the company that installed sprinklers. 
When Bob ended up going to rehab due to a drinking problem, Paul was one of the only friends that Bob still hung around with after rehab, and he made sure that no one at the cookout drank if Bob was feeling uncomfortable. Bob actually ended up naming his son after Paul, a sign of just how much Paul's loyalty through those rough times meant to Bob. Another close friend that Paul made was Rich Lesmeister. When Rich's wife died of cancer, Paul helped him out with the kids, and when Rich eventually met his second wife, Carol, Paul played a large role in helping Carol and her kids feel welcome. However, while Paul was largely known as a responsible, kind, and hardworking man, his run-ins with the law continued throughout his life. In 1988, he faced a false reporting charge in Boulder, Colorado. In 1990, he was charged with harassment and disorderly conduct. In 1991, he faced a menacing charge. And in 1993, he was again charged with harassment and disorderly conduct. There were also rumors that he was a small-time marijuana dealer, though his family insist that while he smoked pot, he never actually dealt it. At around the time that he started working at Student Movers, Paul met a woman named Michelle Russell. Although he and Michelle were both in relationships when they met, those relationships soon broke down and Paul and Michelle ended up getting together. The relationship moved rather quickly. Michelle moved in with Paul almost immediately, and the couple got married within a couple of years after meeting. On July 27th, 1989, their daughter, Sarah Skiba, was born. However, by the time that Sarah was born, Paul and Michelle's marriage had already soured, and they ended up separating not too long afterward. Michelle moved to a town called Granby, a hundred miles away from Westminster, taking Sarah with her. The divorce and custody battle were quite bitter, as Paul wanted to see his daughter as much as he could. He was eventually granted Wednesdays, every other weekend during the school year, and the entirety of summer break. Despite the 100-mile trip to Granby, Paul was an incredibly attentive father, never missing a single visit. According to his friend Bob Martinez, Sarah was Paul's whole world. They were like a Hallmark card. He'd do anything he could for that girl. Those that knew her described Sarah as a friendly, outgoing, and talkative young girl, much like her father. She enjoyed dancing, singing, swimming, animals, and babies. And she and her father would often spend their weekends together on adventures skiing, snowboarding, rollerblading, camping, or just generally anything involving the great outdoors. Not long after the divorce, Paul's friend, Jerry Bybee, had introduced him to a young woman, 10 years his junior, named Teresa Donovan. Teresa did not work due to a disability, arthritis in her legs, and often stayed with Paul and his mother, Sharon. Sharon had moved out to Colorado to live with Paul after both mother and son had gone through their divorces. Sharon and Teresa did not get along at all, with Sharon being quite blatant about the fact that she did not think Teresa was suitable for Paul, and that she did not like allowing Teresa to be around Sarah, although allowances must be given since she was disabled. Teresa reportedly did not contribute much to the household at all, spending large parts of the day sleeping, and often not even getting out of bed when Paul had guests over. Paul and Teresa dated on and off for years, and in 1998, following a period of being broken up for several months, the pair spent a night together. A few weeks later, Teresa informed Paul that she was pregnant. Naturally, this news wasn't exactly welcome. 
and although he had doubts about the paternity of the child from day one, Paul rented a trailer for Teresa to stay in during the month of April, and he ended up allowing Teresa to move back into his house before her November due date. This was not, however, to be a cordial reconciliation. Following the birth of their son, Paul Roger Skiba, Paul told friends that he was only allowing Teresa to stay in the house because he did not think she was capable of caring for the child on her own. As it was, he claimed that he would often come home from work to find that Teresa was either out of the house partying with the neighbors, or still in bed, leaving Sarah to care for the baby. At the time, Sharon, Paul's mother, was traveling back and forth to Minnesota to deal with her mother's death and thus wasn't as available to help with the baby as she normally would have been. On Friday, February 5th, 1999, Paul called his mother, who was in Minnesota at the time, and asked her to come back to Colorado as soon as possible. He told her that he planned on leaving Teresa for good, and had told her to get out of the house by Sunday night. He still had doubts as to the paternity of the baby, and planned on getting a paternity test done. If the child did indeed turn out to be his, he planned to sue for full custody. On Saturday, February 6th, Paul's friend Jerry, who now worked for Paul at Tough Movers, asked Paul if he could cover his shift the next day. Jerry and his siblings wanted to get together to do some planning for their grandfather's memorial service. Although this would mean Paul would have to take Sarah along the job with him, Paul agreed to cover the shift. On Sunday, February 7th, Paul, Sarah, and Lorenzo Shivers, another one of Paul's employees, started their workday at around 8.30 a.m., and after a full day of hard work, returned to the Tough Movers yard at around 6.15. Sarah made a call home to an unnamed female relative a few minutes later at about 6.22 p.m. This call would be the last anyone would hear from Paul, Sarah, or Lorenzo. The following Monday, February 8th, 1999, Jerry arrived at the Tough Movers yard sometime between 9.30 and 10 a.m. He was scheduled to go on a job with Paul and Lorenzo, but even though Jerry was a little late, neither man was there. The gate into the yard was closed and locked, and strangely, the lock had been changed. Jerry thought this was odd, but it did not set off any alarm bells quite yet. After all, Paul would generally change the locks after he fired someone, so Jerry figured someone must have been fired, and he just hadn't heard about it yet. While waiting for Paul and Lorenzo to show up, Jerry noticed that the big moving truck that Paul always carefully backed into its spot had been pulled in front first and crooked. He described the haphazard parking job as looking like somebody had just pulled in the yard at 50 miles per hour and hit the brakes. Paul was apparently quite particular about how that truck was parked, and it would have been highly out of character for him to park it in that manner. Still, Jerry dismissed it, thinking to himself that he couldn't wait to hear the story behind why the truck was parked like that, as Paul was a very colorful storyteller. Meanwhile, in Granby, Colorado, Paul's ex-wife Michelle called the police and reported that Paul had not returned with Sarah after his weekend visit. Michelle had recently informed Paul that she planned on moving to Oregon, and thought that perhaps Paul had panicked, thinking he would be separated from his daughter, and had maybe run off with her. The county sheriff's department issued a warrant for Paul's arrest, under suspicion of parental abduction. Working under this assumption, no one believed Paul or Sarah's lives to be in danger. However, this did not explain Lorenzo's disappearance.
Lorenzo Shivers, who had only been working with Paul for a few months, had actually met Paul through Teresa, as he lived with Teresa's sister, Bobby Joe. Described as a mellow, nice man, Lorenzo had two children with his ex-wife Misha, with whom he still had a good relationship, and he definitely wasn't the type to just up and leave without telling his children or ex-wife where he was going. When Misha asked Bobby Joe, Teresa's sister and Lorenzo's roommate, if she knew anything about where Lorenzo might have gone. All Bobby Joe said was, I know he's not coming home. I know something horrible has happened to him. That Thursday, mere days after the disappearances, Misha took her and Lorenzo's oldest son, Josh, to the house Lorenzo had shared with Bobby Joe to pick up some of Josh's things, only to find that Bobby Joe had packed up everything from Josh's room and left it all by the door. Since the police had latched onto the theory that Paul had taken off with Sarah, it took a lot of convincing to get them to do any investigating into these disappearances. It wasn't until Wednesday, three days after Paul, Sarah, and Lorenzo had last been seen or heard from, that the police finally went down to check out the tough movers lot. Jerry, who was present for this first walkthrough, was less than impressed with the quality of the investigation, claiming that the responding officer dismissed anything he pointed out as potentially odd, trampled over potential evidence without any regard for the damage he could be doing to the crime scene, and left without doing an actual thorough search of the property. The officer left the tough movers lot still firmly believing the original theory that Paul had abducted Sarah. Although police tried to convince Sheriff that her son had simply run off with her granddaughter. Sharon did not believe it for a second. Paul had spent enough time in court to know that running off with Sarah would only cause him more heartbreak in the long run, she said. However, police did not listen to Sharon's concerns that something was amiss. Growing increasingly desperate as days continued to pass without any sign from Paul, Sarah, or Lorenzo, Sharon began her own investigation. She hired a helicopter to fly over the area around Tough Movers hoping to catch a glimpse of Paul's missing car from above. But this search turned up nothing. A week after Paul and Sarah's disappearance, Sharon met up with Rich and Carol Lesmeister at Tough Movers. Rich and Carol, Paul's old friends, hopped the fence to the lot and went to take a look around. While the officer who investigated the scene earlier that week had reportedly seen nothing out of the ordinary, Rich and Carol noticed some disturbing things namely bullet holes in the side of one of the moving trucks, a smear of blood on the big truck door, and what looked to be a small chunk of a scalp near the windshield. Rich and Carol climbed back over the fence, grimly told Sharon that it did not look good, and that they needed to call the police. After the police showed up at the Tough Movers lot, the scene quickly dissolved into a battle between Paul's family and friends and the Westminster police. Even after hearing what Rich and Carol had seen, police initially refused to budge from the idea that Paul had taken off with Sarah, offering up very thin explanations for what Rich and Carol might have seen, claiming that maybe someone had cut themselves and accidentally brushed up against the big truck and maybe the other truck had been shot at while moving at some point in time, things like that. Discussions and arguments between Paul's friends and the police continued until the early hours of the morning, with the police debating over whether or not they even had jurisdiction in the case. After all, the missing persons reports had been filed in nearby Thornton, not Westminster. Finally, after midnight, police from Thornton showed up and declared that they would continue with the case 
taking down everyone's information and asking them to leave. Sharon told the police that they should secure the scene before they left, but the next morning, the lot was still wide open. Not trusting the police at this point, for obvious reasons, Paul's friends and family continued on with their search scouring the surrounding area for any sign of Paul, Sarah, or Lorenzo. After two days of searching, Jerry came across Lorenzo's car in a Westminster parking lot. The car was clean, with no fingerprints to be found, and did not contain any clear clues as to its owner's whereabouts. A few days after that, Denver police found Paul's car abandoned in an apartment complex located at 3129 Arkansas Avenue in Denver. For reference, Westminster is just outside of Denver, and the drive from Tough Movers to 3129 Arkansas Avenue was about 25 minutes, or 15 and a half miles. While Paul's car was also free of any suspicious fingerprints, some of Paul's personal belongings and Sarah's backpack were found inside. In another stunning example of inexcusably bad police work in this case, Thornton police returned Paul's moving trucks to Sharon, as she wanted to keep Paul's business running in case he returned. However, when she received the trucks, one still had bits of scalp and hair stuck to the hood, prompting Sharon to ask the police if they made a habit of returning vehicles that still contained evidence. After doing a more thorough search of Paul's Tough Movers trucks, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation discovered, using luminol, that the inside of the big truck was completely covered in blood. Blood that, when tested, was discovered to belong to Paul and Sarah Skiba. The piece of scalp found on the truck was determined to be Paul's. Further investigation of the Tough Movers yard would also reveal further blood spattered and pooled on the floor near the truck which had been obfuscated by a likely purposeful oil spill. This blood also belonged to Paul and Sarah, and the sheer amount of blood found indicated that father and daughter had been fatally injured. Five weeks after Paul, Sarah, and Lorenzo disappeared, police finally announced that they suspected foul play had been involved. Now, we're going to pause for just a moment to hear a word from today's sponsors. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sadly, due to the botched beginnings of this investigation and the sheer amount of time that was wasted, there was very little evidence to go off of. Based on the timeline of that night, authorities believed that the three victims were ambushed and killed after their return to the Tough Movers' yard. Their bodies were then placed into the big moving truck and brought to another location, where they were then dumped. Witnesses claimed that the big truck left Tough Movers at around 7 or 8 p.m. that night and returned around midnight. If this is true, then it indicates that the bodies could only be a couple of hours away at the most. Since vegetation in the radiator suggested that the truck had been driven near a body of water, authorities searched nearby lakes for the bodies, but they came up empty-handed. Bloodhounds combed the area and found nothing. Over and over, leads turned into dead ends, and police even resorted to consulting a psychic, which predictably led
led nowhere. It is heavily suspected that Paul was the main target, with Sarah and Lorenzo being unlucky bystanders, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Even Paul's friends admit that there were people out there who had a vendetta against him, mainly people he had fired. It also appears that whoever did this knew Paul and his schedule quite well, as they seem to have known not only that he was working that day, a day he usually had off, but also knew when he would approximately be returning to the yard. Thornton detective Pat Long, who worked on the case for six years, also believed that multiple people may have been involved in the killings. After all, whoever did this would have to overpower two healthy, full-grown men who worked in a job that required a good amount of physical labor. In the intervening 22 years, many people have been interviewed, but no arrests have been made. However, for those that are aware of this tragic case, there does seem to be one particularly suspicious party. It's time we talk about Teresa. As previously mentioned, Teresa Donovan was Paul's very irresponsible on-again-off-again girlfriend. She was tangled up in this case in more ways than one, as her sister, Bobby Joe was living with and potentially dating Lorenzo, and her brother Tom was a former employee of Paul's. Following the disappearances, Sharon, Paul's mother, Teresa, his on-again-off-again girlfriend, and Paul Roger, Paul and Teresa's son, continued living together in Paul's house for a few weeks, before Teresa and the baby finally left the house in March. This would hardly be the end of Sharon and Teresa's interactions, however, as only a month later Teresa went to court, arguing that she should be in control of Paul's assets, not Sharon. Now, this was a curious argument to say the least, as Teresa and Paul were not married and thus had no legal relationship, besides both being parents to Paul Roger and Sharon, as Paul's next of kin, had already been appointed temporary conservator of Paul's estate. Teresa objected to this, she claimed, on behalf of her son. She believed that Paul would have wanted his assets passed along to his children. She told the court that she and Paul had intended to get married and that they had already considered themselves to be common-law spouses. Her claims ran contrary to everything that Paul's friends and family knew about their relationship especially when we remember that Paul had always doubted whether he was Paul Rogers' biological father, and had been in the process of kicking Teresa out of the house when he vanished, not to mention the fact that he had filed his taxes as single that year. Ultimately, the court rejected Teresa's claims, and appointed Sharon to be the permanent conservator of Paul's estate, a role that included paying child support to Teresa. Although Teresa has refused to discuss the case publicly for years now, there was once a time where she did give interviews regarding Paul, Sarah, and Lorenzo's disappearances, namely on the Montel Williams show and MSNBC. In those interviews, she indicated that the police had, at one point or another, considered her a suspect, that they had given her a lie detector test, which she failed, and that the police had told her that they suspected she killed the three missing people, or at the very least had them killed. Teresa, however, always maintained her innocence, and shockingly claimed that she knew who actually killed Lorenzo, Paul, and Sarah, saying that the killings had partially been driven by the fact 
that Paul had rented parking spaces to the supposed killers, but had had those cars towed recently. She said that these people had a vendetta against Paul, and did not care who was with him. She even says that the motive may have been partially driven by drugs. Now, Teresa Donovan is not the only one who has suggested drugs as a potential motive behind the murders. Detective Pat Long once sat down with Misha and Josh, Lorenzo's ex-wife and son, and told them that Paul had been using his business as a front for narcotics, and had gotten mixed up with the wrong people, and that Sarah and Lorenzo had simply gotten caught up in the crossfire, a theory he would repeat to the media. Paul's family and friends, however, insist that this isn't true, and that while Paul did smoke marijuana, he was by no means a kingpin. While there is technically nothing that disproves this drug theory being peddled by Teresa and Detective Long, what's curious about Teresa's claim is that she supposedly knows exactly who is responsible for killing her boyfriend, the father of her child, and yet has sat on that secret for over 20 years now. Sure, maybe the argument could be made that Teresa is scared of retribution if she were to go to the police with what she knows, but couldn't she have just left town or dropped an anonymous tip rather than go to the media claiming she knows the killer's identities? It's very bizarre no matter how you slice it, and it's naturally led many to be suspicious of Teresa herself, especially since Teresa had a pretty easily defined motive for having Paul killed. Money as seen by the fact that she tried to go after Paul's estate only about two months after his disappearance. Additionally, and perhaps most suspiciously, there is evidence to suggest that Teresa herself was actually at the scene of the crime that night. Witnesses reported hearing a woman scream somewhere near the Tough Movers lot that night, and Jerry said that when he talked to Teresa the day after the disappearances, she told him that she had gone to the lot the night before, and not to tell the police that little fact. Teresa also wasn't the only member of her family with a potential motive here. Her brother, Tom Donovan, was a former employee of Paul's, who was fired only a few months before their disappearance. And if Teresa's behavior post-disappearance was suspicious and weird, her brother's was outright diabolical. Well known for his temper, Tom reportedly had a confrontation with Jerry after the disappearances, throwing rocks at the Tough Movers truck that Jerry was driving and yelling, You're next. You're next. Even more egregious was a call he made to Sharon, Paul's mother, where he told her that he was glad Paul was dead, that he and Sarah had been shot in the head, and that he was going to shoot her in the head as well. Later, he took Sharon and Jerry to court over money he said they owed him, according to Bob Martinez, who accompanied Sharon and Jerry to the courthouse. During that hearing, Tom actually pretended to shoot Sharon. Despite this truly appalling and incredibly suspicious behavior, it does not appear as though Tom was ever seriously investigated as a potential culprit. So altogether, the Donovan family had three separate connections to this case. Teresa being the most obvious, as Paul's former girlfriend and mother of his son, Tom as a former employee, and their sister Bobby Joe, who was Lorenzo's roommate slash maybe girlfriend. Bobby Joe was also the one who gave an ominous message to Misha, Lorenzo's ex-wife, the day after his disappearance, seeming to know that something bad had happened to Lorenzo and that he would not be returning. The fact that she packed up all of Josh's things only four days after their disappearance also point to the idea that Bobby Joe was fully aware that Lorenzo would not be coming back. 
Although Bobby Joe does not have a clear motive for killing Paul, and thus seems less likely to have been directly involved than Teresa or Tom, it's possible that she was aware of what her siblings had done. Compare this with the fact that police believe that multiple people could have accosted Paul, Sarah, and Lorenzo that night. And it's no wonder that people who read up on this case tend to turn to the Donovans as the most likely potential suspects. Whether or not Tom and or Teresa were actually the ones to pull the trigger, or if they had others do their dirty work for them. Nonetheless, all of these tangled strings connecting Teresa, Tom, and Bobby Joe to the crime make it feel likely that one or more of the Donovans was involved, especially since Teresa is the only other person besides Paul, Sarah, and Lorenzo, who, if Jerry is to be believed, can be placed at the Tough Mover's yard the night of their murders. Outside of the Donovans, the only other named suspects in this case are Paul's cousin, Herbert Hines, who worked with Paul for a while before Paul fired him for supposedly stealing money from the business, and then Lorenzo Shivers himself. Herbert, who once served six years for aggravated robbery, apparently swore he'd get even with Paul for firing him, according to Paul's friend Rich. Herbert, for his part, was very dismissive of the idea that he held a grudge against Paul, claiming that he willingly left the business because he was making more money in the stock market, and that he knows nothing about the case, beyond what has been publicly reported. The Lorenzo Shivers theory mainly stems from one key fact. You'll remember that blood, hair, and pieces of scalp were found at the scene of the crime, and all of this evidence was matched through DNA to either Paul or Sarah. Curious, some might say, that one of the three victims left no DNA evidence at the crime scene, while evidence that the other two had been attacked was all over the place. Could this then mean that Lorenzo was actually involved in the crime, rather than being a victim himself? Well, not exactly. Although the lack of DNA evidence from Lorenzo at the yard looks suspicious when taken at face value, police have never considered him a legitimate suspect. This is primarily because there have been no signs whatsoever of Lorenzo since the day he disappeared. No sightings, no phone calls to family members, nothing at all to suggest that he survived that tragic night. There are also several other explanations for why Lorenzo's blood wasn't at the Tough Movers lot. He could have been taken and killed at a second location, perhaps even forced to help dispose of Paul and Sarah's bodies before being killed himself. Either way, investigators believe it's very unlikely that Lorenzo himself was actually involved, especially since he had no motive for killing Paul. Misha has understandably been quite hurt over the years by the suspicion cast on her ex-husband, the father of her children. She once wrote a letter to the media expressing dismay at the fact that in this case, Lorenzo was always sidelined treated as a potential suspect, a third party, or just the employee, rather than as a loving father who was just as much of a victim as Paul and Sarah were. Although the case is, at least as of 2019, still being investigated, this is unfortunately more or less where it goes cold, with little to no advancements being made in this story in the 22 years since Paul, Sarah, and Lorenzo disappeared. In 2005, the case was handed over from the Thornton Police to the Westminster Police, a change that surprised Paul, Sarah, and Lorenzo's family and friends, especially Sharon and Misha, who had grown a rapport with Detective Pat Long over the years. Detective Long regularly called Sharon and Misha to give them updates on the case, and neither woman felt as though they had the same level of communication with the Westminster Police. Naturally, Paul, Sarah, 
Sarah and Lorenzo's family and friends have been seeking answers for all of these years. While they have accepted that it is very likely that Paul, Sarah, and Lorenzo are no longer with us, they of course want to know what happened to them and why. Whatever it was that Paul got caught up in that led to this murder, it shouldn't have cost the lives of three people, especially not that of a nine-year-old. Michelle, Sarah's mother, told CNN in 2009, 10 years after the disappearances, someone took her away from me unjustly. I'm not going to sleep until I know why. Over the years, Michelle has rallied searches to take place via air, land, and over water, has gone door to door, and raised $50,000 in reward money for anyone who comes forward with information about the disappearances. Unfortunately, nothing substantial has come of her efforts, yet. Sharon, meanwhile, would sadly be plagued by financial woes in the years following her son and granddaughter's disappearances. While she attempted to keep tough movers afloat, many of Paul's clients were only interested in doing business with him. In March of 2000, a year after the disappearances, Sharon dissolved the moving company, and by 2001, Paul's money had run out. Since Paul was declared a missing person, and thus technically still presumed to be alive, his debts had not gone away, and Sharon was forced to try and keep up with payments using credit cards and her own quickly depleting savings. While she obtained permission from the courts to sell Paul's house in November of 2000, real estate agents told her that she wouldn't be able to sell it without a death certificate. By this point, Sharon was desperate to return to her family in Minnesota, not only due to the financial struggles she was facing, but because she felt increasingly paranoid and frightened, presuming that the person or people who killed Paul, Sarah, and Lorenzo had known Paul well, as police suspected. They also presumably knew where he had lived and thus where Sharon now lived. However, she also felt as though she had to settle matters with the house before moving back, and she started the process of having Paul and Sarah be declared dead as soon as she could. In 2004, five years after they disappeared, her court date kept getting pushed back, and she wasn't able to obtain the death certificates until December of 2006, nearly eight years after the fact. She was finally able to sell Paul's house in May of 2007, and she put the money from the sale in an account so the probate court could decide how to disperse it. Sharon had hoped that much of this money might go back to her to reimburse her for the time and money she had put into the house while waiting on the death certificates. However, the court ruled that her claim that she had been unable to sell the house for so long was without merit, and Sharon was reimbursed only $15,562.14. Everything else, $65,000 for the house and $100,000 from a life insurance policy Paul had taken out on Sarah, went to Paul's son with Teresa, Paul Roger Skiba. Sharon had filed a motion for the court to order a paternity test for Paul Roger in 2004, but the motion had been denied. Despite this, Teresa Donovan mailed test results showing that Paul had indeed been her son's father. Sharon, however, did not trust these test results, despite wanting to believe that a piece of her son was still out there. She protested the ruling, but Teresa Donovan's lawyer cross-appealed, and Sharon eventually gave it up as she was quite simply running out of money. While Sharon continued to search for answers for the rest of her life, she passed away in 2013, a sad coda to this very sad tale.
Regrettably, despite the heavy suspicions cast upon the Donovans, especially Teresa and Tom, the careless police work that plagued this case, especially in those first crucial days, likely means that the chances of uncovering what exactly happened to Paul, Sarah, and Lorenzo are slim. There is, however, always hope. Today, Paul would be 61 years old, Lorenzo 58, and Sarah 31. Paul is described as a Caucasian male, with brown hair and blue eyes, and stands about 6 foot 1. Lorenzo is an African American male with black hair and brown eyes, and stands about 5 feet 10 inches tall. And Sarah, a Caucasian female with blonde hair, hazel eyes, and a red mark across the bridge of her nose. If you have any information about Paul, Sarah, and Lorenzo, please contact the Westminster Police Department at 303 430-2400. And let's hope that one day, the family of these three can have their long-awaited closure. Until such a time, the stories of Paul Skiba, Sarah Skiba, and Lorenzo Shivers will remain unresolved. Thanks for listening, everybody. I know that I haven't done an outro for a hot minute now, but I just wanted to chime in for a second and let you all know some great news. Some business and some personal. First, the business. As you guys and gals probably know, I have been quite passionate about a few cases that I've covered on this podcast. One is the Millbrook twins from Augusta, Georgia, who went missing together in March of 1990. I covered their case a few years back, and I have become good friends with Laura and Brooke, the host of the Fall Line podcast. Well, encouraged by the hard work that Laura and Brooke have done over the years, there is now a private investigator working on the case, due in part to the nonprofit group Investigations for the Missing. I'll include a link to this group's GoFundMe page if you feel encouraged to help out but this would really help out the family of the Millbrook twins and others just like them, who continue to search for answers years after their loved one's disappearance. I just made a small donation myself, and I hope to follow that up with some more in the near future. If you feel comfortable matching my donation, or even exceeding it, that would be outstanding. If not, then no worries. I know this has been a rough year, and not everyone is in a position to make a donation right now, but if you can try and help spread the word, you know, anything, that would be great. Thank you. Now, with that out of the way, I would like to share some exciting personal news. My wife and I are expecting our first child, who is expected to be born in early June, although it's at the point where it could happen at any moment now. I've kind of kept this from the podcast out of an overabundance of caution, as well as me wanting to avoid getting too personal, because I know some people really don't like that, but this is something that I'm really excited about. I seriously can't wait to be a dad. I'm gonna bombard this kid with so many dad jokes, you have no idea. Now, this shouldn't really affect any of you or the podcast too much, but 
don't be surprised if I end up taking a small impromptu break within the next month or two. I've been working with some additional writers to try and help carry the load for a little bit, but this news also happens to coincide with a couple of side projects that I've been working on this year, which I will hopefully be able to tell you about very soon. Anyhow, I just wanted to share these exciting bits of news with you guys. I'm sure that I'll be posting baby pictures on all of the social media platforms once we get there, but I just want to sincerely thank all of you for your patience, support, and everything else you've shown me over the years. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you again very soon.